Hello again, my name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're beginning a series today coming out of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in it uh, from now until Advent, looking at uh, the parables of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was a, was a master teacher, and one of his favorite techniques was to be a storyteller. And his stories are called parables. It comes from the verb to kind of just cast out or throw out. And Je- these are stories that Jesus made up to just kind of throw out there, to show us a point, to, to bring something poignant home to us. And here in Luke 6, we're going to be today in chapter, uh, verse 37 through 45, Jesus is wrapping up what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's, it's very similar to the more well-known Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. But here in Luke, Jesus is laying out his dream we could call it, for the community of humanity that will be one day, someday, what they could actually look like in him. So as is our tradition, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? It's found for you on page 10 of your order of worship, Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 45. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your eye. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does the bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your word today. We do pray, Lord, that you would give us truth for our transformation, Lord. We pray that by your spirit encountered in your word, we would taste and see that you are good to us through Christ, that you would show us our sin, and that we would immediately flee to Christ as he's offered for us in salvation. And we pray that you would bring conviction and change today by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So here in this passage, in this whole sermon, Jesus is laying out what we could call his dream for humanity. Uh, and it's a family living together in love, you know. And what's interesting about this is our culture, most secular people, they also just want a better world. And it's very similar to the dream that Jesus has here, the dream that God as human, what he expresses. But there's a major difference. Unlike our culture, Jesus actually provides the resources to get us to this community because without those resources, it just won't happen. Which gets us to our theme for today, which is this. We long for things to be better, but without the gospel, we start a shouting match. We'll see how we get there today. 
So we're going to start out the first part of this passage with enough judging. It's a very famous, it's probably one of the most famous of Jesus' sayings. Even people unfamiliar with Christianity, people completely secular, they seem to know this one, don't they? Right? Don't judge. Don't condemn. And then the, the next part, not as well known, forgive, give, and you'll get all that back to you as well. Why is it so well known? Well, it's so well known because judging is one of the few actual sins for our culture, isn't it? And a culture that doesn't want to say anything is off limits. Our culture is like, yeah, except for that, right? Don't do that. That's a sin. Mind your oughts. Anybody heard that one lately? How about stay in your lane, right? And of course, it's not cancel culture that has a judging problem. It's always us in the church, right? We have the judging problem. A couple years ago, USA Today ran an article written by a 15-year-old. And I don't want to be snarky and say that they had an agenda, but here's the title of the article. Churches could win back teens like me if they were more welcoming and less judgmental. You can Google that, real article. And this teen author recounts being reprimanded for wearing pants in church. And such judgmentalism supposedly caused her to leave Christianity. And I don't want to mock her pain, but we've all judged others based on how they dress. We've all been judged based on how we dress. So I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But nevertheless, stories like hers are all too common, aren't they? Almost every one of us in the room could tell a story about someone who had a bad experience at a church dealing with judgment and let that define them and let that define their exit from the church. You know, first century Palestine where Jesus is giving these original words was what sociologists call a shame culture. Being a good person being an acceptable person, being a righteous person was external. You were either clean or unclean. You were either good or bad. You were either worthy or unworthy in a demonstrable way, and everybody knew, and everybody could tell. There was no guessing. So judgmental relationships were completely normal. Jesus is talking into something that's completely normal. You knew you were going to be judged. And so complete opposite of our current culture, you looked at the external standard of your community and you said, I will conform my internal person. I will behave as my community says so I can avoid being judged. So you could avoid shame. Jesus comes to that and Jesus says, no, it's about the heart. It's not about behavior conformity. And based on the context of Jesus' whole sermon right before this, he's making the point that since God has not dealt so with us, we should not deal so with others. That God has not been harsh with us, therefore we should not be harsh with others. And for those of us in church world, a judgmental mentality gets down to our view of God. A heart of judgment, according to Jesus, assumes a God of judgment. Jesus forces us to ask with this little part of his sermon, is that how God has revealed himself in Scripture? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. He teaches that God is like a father. And like any parent, when he has to punish, he doesn't enjoy it. I hope you don't rejoice to punish your children. And if you do, let's talk, okay? Um, So anyway, Jesus says God's like that. He doesn't rejoice to punish. Let's look together at verse 38. What does he tell us? He reminds us. He reminds his listeners that God is kind. What's he say? He says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. 
Jesus is grabbing into their culture a very common um, practice in the world of commerce. You could go to a, a bazaar today in like an African country, the Middle East, you could see the same behavior. There were, when you went to buy something, if it was something that could be weighed, then they would have a balance there and they would put the product on one side and they would put specific weights on the other so you could see them balance and you would know you're getting what you paid for. If it was something that was sold by volume, such as like grain, let's say, the, the person would take it, they, they would fill it up, they would scoop off the top, then they would shake it as much as possible, then they would press it down, and they would put some more, and they would repeatedly do this to show that I am, I am not shorting you at all. They didn't want a reputation of being untrustworthy, so they would give you extra. And sometimes what they would do is they would put the cup in your lap, and you'd be wearing a robe or something like this, and they would purposely let it spill over so you would know you've gotten more. This is the picture Jesus gives. In other words, unlike us today when you grab that, that bag of Lay's potato chips, right, and brand new, and you open it up, and you're like, where's all my potato chips, right? It's empty. Instead, Jesus is saying, no, God gives kind of like five guys. You go to five guys, what do you do? You pay for this size fry. They load it up, and then you notice what they do? They put an extra scoop in the bag. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. Jesus says, God gives like that. Gracious. It's, he gives you more than you're expecting. Always a full measure. He points out the gracious heart of God in this image and says, our hearts should reflect that same graciousness. You see, we Christians need to get that because we will live out our view of God. If we see God as petty, if we see God as angry, if we see God as judgmental, we will be that way. If we see God as abundantly gracious like the image he gives in verse 38, we will be that way. How judgmental we are or are not indicates if we really believe the gospel. It really does. Either Jesus fully paid for our guilt and sin on the cross, or he did not. He left some out. And so we have to judgmentally point that out to others. Either Jesus fully earned God's approval on the cross, or he did not. And if, we, if he did not, then we have to earn approval. And so if someone else isn't working as hard to earn it as we are, we get to judge them. Jesus says here, God's not out to get us. He's not playing gotcha. And neither should we. Enough judging. But there's another meaning outside of this very church world narrative I've given. Our culture has a concept of enoughness or being enough. It's, it's a non-religious word that encapsulates the religious idea of righteousness or, or being worthy. Author and social critic David Zoll says it this way. Remember we read his book, Seculosity as a Congregation, last year? I have a quote here from David Zoll. It says this. It says, people want to feel like they are enough. I got a quote here. Get a quote from David Zoll, please. There we go. People want to feel like they are enough. So we try to wrestle that enoughness out of spouse, career, bank account, food choices, children, and as a result, you're constantly being measured and falling up short. See, judging is assumed to be a church world thing, but it's not. In our culture, we judge each other based on enoughness. I'll give you a thought experiment. You ready? Someone comes up to you, someone you like, and they say, hey, are you busy this week? And the internal struggle happens, right? Because cognitively, you know, what are they asking? Do you have time for me? They're not actually asking, are you busy? But you can't just say, no, I'm not busy, because why aren't you busy? 
how are you proving your worth as a person? How are you proving your worth as an employee? How are you proving your righteousness in our culture, right? If you're not busy, right, what? Get on the ball. You can't say that. So you had this internal struggle, right? And this is not just me, right? You get this? You're following me? Okay, thank you. Yeah, so that's because you have to be busy to be enough, right? And you have that struggle when someone comes to you. See, we do that because if Christianity is true, if the Bible is real in what it tells us, then we are created. We are hardwired for righteousness. We are hardwired to conform to God's instructions, commonly translated law. We're, we are created to plug into that system and perform in that system for our own fulfillment. Excluded from that system, outside of God's law, we grab onto anything that if I can perform this, then I feel worthy. Then I feel like I'm enough. It, be, it holds a religious significance in our heart. And we use that belief, we use that practice to feel like we're okay, like we're enough. I want to make sure you're tracking with me here. So in the fall of 2018, a very popular advice columnist collected her essays together into a book called What If This Were Enough? And she says this, she says her inbox overflows with young professionals expressing a common anxiety and they say this, they say they feel that an external mob is watching and judging and withholding approval. It's impossible to matter, to be interesting enough. No matter how hard you try, someone else out there is taking the same raw ingredients and making a better life out of them. See, this hardwired setting to conform to a standard to be enough, it creates a culture of judgment. And even though it's secular people doing it, it's still a very religious impulse. See, and Jesus here makes the case that our thirst to be enough is satisfied through a relationship with the Creator as Father, as one who wants to graciously give to us, the one who gives us resources to make us better people, and he, to make us into a loving community instead of judging each other or feeling like we are not enough. So Jesus here tries to combat judging using the carrot of grace. And now we see in verses 41 and 42, he uses the opposite of the carrot where he calls us out for enough hypocrisy. He calls us out for acting, for pretending. That's what the word hypocrisy meant. It was the word for an actor. And we're hypocritical when we judge people. And I love how Jesus here, if you read this in context, Jesus is frustrated and sarcastic. Non-Christians here today, listen, I hope you hear that about Jesus. So often we had this very antiseptic view of Jesus, but Jesus was fully human and he had all the emotions of a human. And there are times when he is sarcastic, when he is biting, when he is curt, and this is one of them. Hey, Jesus, this picture of Jesus is more robust than, you know, about, I guess about a month ago, I think I recommended the book Pride and Prejudice. For those of you who read it, Jesus is not the Reverend Mr. Collins from that book, okay? He is not this little, like, you know, fragile dandy going on and on about rosings and Lady de Bourg, you know, always saying some weird things in King James English. No, okay? Jesus is biting, and he is snarky, and he is funny. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld is going to come by and pick him up for an episode of Comedians and Chariots getting coffee. He's that good. Okay? He wants to talk about this. See, again, we're in some pretty well-known Jesus stuff in church world, aren't we? Why do we pick, nitpick the bit of dust in our neighbor's contact lens when we got this railroad tie sticking out of our own eye? We're so quick to give ourselves a pass on our faults, but we're merciless on another's faults. See, Jesus is telling the story of the dream he has for humanity here, where we actually get to live in this community of love and peace because he has changed us. 
You know that line from Hamilton, why do you assume you're the smartest in the room? Jesus is saying here, actually, you should be the opposite. You should assume you're the worst in the room. Jesus looks at those who identify as his people, and he says, judging others is not your priority. Stay in your lane. Assume you're the bigger offender in the relationship, especially before you dare to speak into another's life. The privilege of speaking into another's life, that's a really big deal. And one of the interesting sociological experiments is how often we in church world assume that we just get to tell others what to do and how to live. It's really weird. Around secular people, you see, they don't do that to each other. They do it online a lot, and they'll do it non-relationally. But in relationships, secular people are very slow, at least in my experience, to speak into another's life and tell them what to do. And just as an aside for free, those of you who are parents who have kids in their 20s who are learning how to be adults on their own, if you want to have an adult relationship with your adult kids, here's how you have to make the adjustment. Parents get to speak into the life of children. Parents don't get to speak into the life of adults without permission. So unless your kids in their 20s come to you and say, hey, what do you think? You don't get to tell them what you think. Unless you don't want to be friends and go ahead, that's fine. Because you know, people love having other adults tell them what to do. So anyway, that's, just, that's an aside. And what's funny about that is this is one of those things about my job people misunderstand. People assume that my job is to judge others and tell them what to do. And I'm always like, man, no way. I don't have time for y'all's specs because Jesus and I are opening up a sawmill so we can make some cash out of my logs. Okay, and you and Jesus should probably do the same thing too because we all got plenty of those to deal with. And Jesus here says, look, if we're not concerned about our logs, then we're hypocrites, pretenders, actors, reading a script throughout, through life instead of being real. There's a huge application for all of us here. Christians are not in our striving to be enough, out there or here inside the church, when we feel like we haven't measured up, what do we do? When we feel like we've fallen short, what do we do? We channel that angst, we channel that energy into judging others, into comparing ourselves to them. I may not be enough, but I'm doing better than her. And as I was researching this week, trying to see where Jesus' teachings are echoed in our culture, I came across so many articles from magazines and from websites by counselors and therapists and psychiatrists validating what Jesus said. Just to give you one here, because I really like the title, psychologist Nick Wignall writes in the article, ever wonder why you're so judgmental? And I'm not going to quote it, but you you can look that up. Ever wonder why you're so judgmental? The gist of his article is this. Does this sound familiar? It says, when we we judge because we feel bad about ourselves, we feel we aren't enough, and so we find solace and reassurance in pointing out how others are not enough either. And you know we're wired that, that way, aren't we? We're like that. Jesus says in verse 39, because we are blind. Let's look together at verse 39 and 40. Jesus says this. So he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. See, God's law, God's instruction was meant to drive people back to God in mercy because it was just too hard. You're supposed to read God's law and go, I can't do this. You've got to be merciful because I have no other option. That's what it's designed to do. But these blind teachers in Jesus' time actually thought they could do it. 
They actually thought they could pull it off, so they relied on their behavior, and they relied on their moral performance to satisfy God. And in context, Jesus is saying, that's the log in your eye, thinking that you can actually fulfill God's law on your own. And if we are a judgmental people, it's because we have the same log, blindly trusting our religious efforts our moral performance rather than resting in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. See, the judgmental person is blind to the grace of God themselves. And so they can't help others who are also blind. When we are judgmental, Jesus says, we are the blind leading the blind and we have fallen into the pit of enoughness. Because judgmental people can't help others. They can only shame, shout, cancel. That is not a loving community. Instead, Jesus says in verse 40, we need to submit to someone higher, someone who knows what they're doing, someone who can show you the non-judgmental way to be human, the way of love. Jesus, you realize, if, again, if the Gospels are true, Jesus is the only human ever fully qualified to judge people because he did it. Whatever it is, he did it better than you. And yet, Jesus says in verse 40, I don't judge people. Neither should you if you're my disciples. If he refrains, his disciples definitely should. See, the Pharisees at the time thought they were holier than Jesus. They thought they were better than Jesus, so they disregarded him. And when we Christians have judgmental hearts towards others, when we presume that we're better than Jesus too, is what verse 40 tells us. We join our culture in assuming that Jesus and Christianity are irrelevant to the real stuff of life when we judge. Jesus said, instead of assuming you're the smartest in the room, let him fully train you is the phrase he uses there in verse 40. Or we could translate it, let him equip you. That should sound familiar after going over our vision for the last month. This is the same word from our key value that we as a church want to be equipped into boldness together. In other words, what Jesus says here is that when a church casts off its judgmentalism, it thrives. Because Jesus enables us to bear good fruit, which is where he wraps us up in verse 43 and 45. Let's look at that together. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So the fruit in this parable is the judgmental speck-seeking Jesus calls out in the previous verses. Jesus says our judgmental speck-seeking hypocrisy comes from inside of us. It reflects who we really are. That's our nature. We are judgmental hypocrites at heart, Jesus says, which means what we need is not more rules, not more practices to follow, not six steps to mindfulness or the three keys to enoughness. We don't need that. That's behavior modification. It may work for a bit, but as we Gen Xers can remind you, as MTV's real world taught us, eventually people stop being polite and they get real. And when we're real, we judge. That's what Jesus says in verse 45. We always act and speak out of what we treasure out of our highest value, our deepest love. And so if we find ourselves 
or if we find our culture longing for peace, for diversity, for unity, all these good sounding things, but at the same time we are insecure, scared, never feeling enough judgmental spec seekers, we need to ask ourselves if what we truly love is worthy of that commitment or if perhaps there's something better we could set our heart on or someone worthy of our love who could empower us to be who we really want to be, (laughs) which is what Jesus offers here. Jesus offers the resources for an internal change, not behavior modification, right? Jesus and Christianity are not Pavlov, for those of you who have had high school psychology and above, right? He doesn't want us to ring the bell and us to salivate. That's behavior modification. That doesn't count. He wants heart change, Like a tree and its fruit, Jesus says, I can change you on the inside into someone who's less judgmental. Here's how. Because in the gospel, we see that Jesus endured the violence of a judging crowd. He literally let them nail him to a guilty cross he didn't deserve. He allowed himself to be judged unto death for a crime he didn't commit. And all the while, he didn't lash out. He asked for their forgiveness. He loved back, taking that violence onto himself. And in dying on the cross, Jesus absorbed the punishment that they earned and that we earned for our sin. Jesus was literally judged for us. And by doing so, what did he do? He reconciled us to God so that we're no longer alienated from our creator. See, in the gospel, we're adopted into God's family And we can know as part of God's family that we're enough because Jesus is enough. He becomes our treasure. And out of that treasure of approval and belonging, of knowing we're enough, we're free from judging others. We're free to love those who still judge us because we're rooted and anchored in who God says we are in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the power of Christianity to bring about Jesus' dream for humanity. So if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're in some good conversations with your non-Christian neighbors, let's just own the reality. We Christians haven't always done a good job at demonstrating this non-judgmental thing. But Christianity still has the power to bring about this loving, peaceable, non-judging community that non-Christians often say they want. So the question to ask is, can our culture's deepest loves, deepest commitments, can it offer those same resources and power to bring about that world? And I would say no, because if it could, it seems like it would have already. See, but the gospel can change our culture because Jesus changes people, starting with me and starting with you. If you want judging to go away, hear this. You should want the gospel to be true. And even just wanting it to be true is enough for God to work with. He can change you. And for those of you here today who would call yourself Christians, Jesus challenges us with two views of God here in this passage. Is God for us or is God against us? I don't mean can you quote that verse from Romans. No, I mean in your guts. Do you believe that God is for you Or is he waiting for you to mess up? See, a judging Christian assumes God is cantankerous, persnickety, constantly finding fault, 
begrudging in his affections, just waiting for us to blow it. That is not the God Jesus introduces us to. And that is not who God reveals himself to be in the Bible. In Scripture, we see a God who takes sin so seriously, he judges sin so harshly, he killed his own son to defeat it. And now the blood of Jesus has fully satisfied the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin. And so God and his people can be reconciled. See, he, he unites people in his son because he loves us. He makes what's true of Jesus true of us when we confess faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And so our sins are judged on Jesus and so we are free. He adopts us into his very family and he says, call me father, dear daughter, dear son. See, and we struggle to believe that, Christians, don't we? Because when we reconcile with others, it's, always, no, it's often this passive-aggressive thing where we make the other person grovel just a bit. We hold them at a distance just enough so they feel it, just to make sure they understand that they really did wrong us. And then we choose, right? After they have suffered enough, we choose to let there be reconciliation. But that's not what God does to us. God himself chose to suffer for the relationship. God himself said, let me suffer to be, to be reconciled to you. And so he is abundantly gracious, overflowing with kindness. That is who God has shown himself to be in the gospel. Oh, Christians in the room, if you find yourself having a judgmental heart, it's because you need to repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray together. How gracious God and heavenly Father. And Lord, even as I say those words, I'm convicted that very often I don't actually believe that you're gracious. I seem to be hardwired to think that you're out to get me, just constantly waiting for me to mess up. And I'm sorry, that's slander. That's not who you've revealed yourself to be. And Lord, I know I'm not alone. I pray, Father, that by your spirit you would bring deep conviction to those of us in the room who call ourselves Christians and yet have a hard time believing you're a loving Father. In fact, we're comforted by you being a judgmental Father and the thought of you not being disturbs us deeply. Father, we pray that you would just squeeze the truth of the gospel into us, Lord. Deep into our very pores would we see that you were kind and good and gracious fully satisfied by the sufferings of Jesus. Lord, we pray for those here today who do not know you, that this picture of your overwhelming love and affection would draw people deep into your very heart, that as Lazarus was called forth from death to life, you would call forth people from death to life as well, that we might, we might repent and see that you were good. We pray that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.